Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you all. I've been excited about this for a long time. I've been a fan of Northside for many, many years. I love George and Nate Ross. I've known George for since 1917, I think it was. And we, we've been friends a long, long time. It was great catching up with him last night. And uh, I got a cousin, Kyle, who is on the staff here as well. So I, I love Northside. When I saw this on my schedule, I thought, I can't wait to get there. Uh, so really honored to, to get to be with you all this weekend. Can you believe Christmas is like a week away? I mean, like next week is going to be Christmas. And uh, it's, uh, we've been in a series where we've been talking about how God is a down-to-earth kind of God. That's the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas is that God wants to be known and we can actually know God. Now, perhaps all this church stuff is really kind of new to you. You don't know a whole lot about church or religion or God or, or Jesus. And if that's you, I cannot tell you how excited that we are that you're here this week and how honored we are that you, that you would show up and, or, or tune in. It's so grateful for you. And just, just, just know that God always honors humble people who seek him like that. Or maybe, you know, growing up, your, your, church, your family went to church only on Christmas where you, you lit a candle and you stood there and you wonder what the heck is all this about anyway. Or maybe, maybe you had a bad experience with a church or maybe with a, someone who called themselves a, a Christian or perhaps you were involved in a very uh, legalistic or uh, toxic, even cult-like uh, religion in the past. Or maybe you've even been a victim of spiritual uh, abuse some kind of manipulation you were taken advantage of in some way and all of it was done in the name of God or, or maybe you had expectations about God that were absolutely shattered when he didn't come through for you the way you thought that he should or maybe you're not even sure that God even exists. So wherever you're at and wherever you've been in your past, I just thought it might be helpful for us to dive in today and explore some of the things we might have been taught about God along the way and maybe together uh, we can learn a few new things, and maybe even more importantly, we can unlearn a few old things together. I, I read an awesome book this past spring called With by Sky Jahani, and I would recommend it to anybody on a spiritual journey. And I'd like to borrow some of the framework and content of that book to unpack some of this today. Uh, he, he, he takes five prepositions. Y'all remember prepositions from English class? He, he takes five prepositions, under, over, from, for, and with, to describe five different ways that people relate to God and, and see life, five different postures that people take with God. Now, I don't mean to brag, but I am a pretty gifted artist, and I brought some incredible artwork today to help us navigate through all of this. And the first category or posture that people take is life under God. <laughs> what? I told you it was incredible artwork. That's all I got, stick figures, that's it. Sharpie and stick figures, that's it. But way back in ancient times, it was believed that the universe was not governed by like the laws of nature, but by the will of the gods. For instance, summer didn't come because the earth's axis shifted so more sunlight reached the northern hemisphere. Fall didn't come because we were ready for some football. It came because the gods willed it to come. And all the gods or God were seen as very, very temperamental, a bit fickle, if you will, moody. So if you offered sacrifices and you performed certain religious rituals, perhaps, perhaps you could appease the gods or God. And if you did, you stood a much better chance of getting rain and getting good crops and getting good health and financial success and so on and so on. But dang, you better not get on his bad side. 
And that's pretty much the way I grew up. Life under God, I was afraid of God, scared to death of God. Now, there is a healthy fear of God that the Bible talks about, but that kind of fear is a term of respect and wonder and awe and worship. It's one thing to quote unquote fear God, it's quite another to be afraid of God. And this life under God posture makes us afraid of him. I used to see God as this invisible creature out there somewhere who was, he was almighty and he seemed to be on this huge authoritative ego trip. So I did not want to tick him off. And therefore you spend your whole life in this spin cycle of fear. You're navigating all these lists of don't do this and don't do that and don't touch this and don't touch that. Instead of ever really getting to know God, who is the lover of your soul, you spend a lifetime of insecurity thinking, Probably some way you've made him mad. Now, this life under God posture dominated the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. In fact, the popular belief about God followed this simple formula. God blesses the righteous and God curses the unrighteous. It was taught if you obey his commandments, or at least appear to, you can avoid trouble and disease. You can amass wealth and get promoted and find favor with God and other people. Consequently, those with material blessings were seen as righteous people. And those who suffered disease or disabilities or hardships, well, they suffered because obviously they were sinners. There's a time recorded in John chapter 9 of the New Testament where Jesus gives sight to a man who was born blind. And it says this, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi or teacher's disciples asking, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? You see, that's just what they'd been taught for generations. And Jesus answers, well, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. This precious man is about to bring glory and honor to God, and Jesus heals this guy. I mean, at every opportunity, Jesus dismantled this life under God kind of thinking. Disobedience did not automatically mean that hard times and disabilities would fall on you. And obeying all the rules did not guarantee your 401k would skyrocket and you'd avoid getting COVID. He would often confront the religious leaders of the day who tried to place all these heavy burdens on people's shoulders, all these heavy expectations on them saying, follow all of these rules, these specific rules, including the ones that we made up, or God's going to drop the hammer on you. Now, this list of requirements that the people were expected to obey was referred to as a yoke, like that heavy beam of wood that's placed on the shoulders of oxen. And in contrast with all these heavy expectations and burdens the religious leaders placed on people's shoulders, I want you to see what Jesus had to say about this. He said, take my yoke upon you. Hook up with me. Do life with me. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. You see, this rule-keeping, life-under-God way of living is a heavy, heavy way to live. It can't give you peace. It can't give you joy. It can't transform you from the inside out. It cannot give you tangible hope. But Jesus can. There's there's another posture that people take, and it's life over God. This is the perspective of atheism or humanism that says there is no God, therefore we are. And I've been there. I call the shots. 
I chart the course, I make the rules, I control my own destiny, I am self-sufficient for I am Mike Almighty. Now, it may not be the same as full-blown atheism, but there is a perspective commonly known as deism that many, even Christians, buy into, which pretty much says there, there might be, probably is a God. But he started this world like a giant self-propelled lawnmower, and now he's kicking back on his heavenly front porch, sipping lemonade, watching all of us just struggle down here. He's, he's like an absentee father. He's a deadbeat dad. He's inactive. He's uninterested. He's uninvolved. He's unconcerned with daily life. Therefore, somebody has to be God. So it might as well be me. You see, I, I'm, I'm discovering that you can believe that God exists and still live your life as if he doesn't. And with this view, our faith gets reduced to nothing more than some quote-unquote godly principles that work for us. Rather than seeing the Bible as a way to get to know God, we can just kind of Google search it for some things that will make our life easier, some ideas that might help us achieve our goals and give us control over our own lives and over other people. Now, please don't get me wrong. I have a very, very high view of Scripture. I read it. I teach it. I meditate on it. I try to memorize it. I try to stick it in my heart. I try to live by its God-inspired authority. I love God's Word. But gang, the primary purpose of God's Word is for us to get to know God. We can actually replace a relationship with God for a relationship with the Bible. And we can reduce faith to a series of five ways to a better marriage. Managing your finance with kingdom principles, seven biblical laws of leadership, 12 steps to recovery. And we can say, I'm not sure about this whole God and Jesus thing, but hey, this stuff works for me. I mean, if we have the book, do we really need the author? So we can set God aside in order to remain in control and be God in our own lives. And this life over God's been going on since the Garden of Eden when mankind, including you and me, say we want to be God. And if you seek to take God's place by either denying his existence or pushing him aside as irrelevant, then this life over God posture only takes you to one place, and that's life without God which is really no life at all. Perhaps you can better relate to this one. This is life from God. This is the posture that God is sort of, uh, you, you, remember, you guys remember the blue genie from the movie Aladdin, the Disney movie? It was voiced over by Robin Williams. This is a great character. Mr. Aladdin, sir, what will your pleasure be? Can I take your order? Jot it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. Da, da, da. Remember that guy? The blue genie from Aladdin, sorry. But life from God sees God sort of like that. Or, or God is like a, a divine vending machine. You just punch in the right combination of numbers and out comes whatever you want. And this life from God thinking is just absolutely fueled by our consumeristic culture. Now, just for my own sanity, can I ask you guys, any of you ever been talking about something and then you start scrolling through your social media feed and there is an ad about what you were just talking about. Does that creep you out? It's, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, I think Alexis is, is, is talking, is talking about, about us all the time. They know what we're saying. They know what we're searching for. And so we are bombarded by anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 ads every day, all telling us that we're lacking in some way. So this life from God fits perfectly into our consumeristic culture. Now, to be clear... Uh, scripture reminds us repeatedly that everything we have comes 
from God. Jesus' brother James tells us in James chapter 1, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from, our, from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. And Jesus himself tells us that we ought to ask our good, good Father for whatever we need. But I'm just telling you from my own experience, this life from God posture has a tendency to expect things from God. You start to live with a sense of entitlement instead of a heart of gratitude. In its extreme form, it's known as the prosperity gospel, also known as the health wealth gospel, or the name it and claim it gospel. And there's lots of people out there promoting that stuff. I think that's why Jesus warned us how easily our hearts can be duped and stolen by this kind of thinking. You see, the danger is this. God stops becoming our treasure. And he starts becoming only how we acquire our treasure. Scott Jahani writes this. He says, life from God is so appealing because it doesn't ask us to change. Our comforts, our values, our wants are projected onto God. And we seek religious systems that affirm those desires. Life from God is nothing more than consumerism with a Jesus sticker slapped on the bumper. Jesus one time told a story, one of his most famous stories, known as the parable of the prodigal son. You might have heard it. But it illustrates God's relationship with people. But it also, I think, is a vivid illustration of this life from God mindset. The younger son in the story, the one that's this rebellious prodigal kid, he takes his inheritance early and goes out and just blows it all in a wild lifestyle. This kid valued his father's gifts much more than he valued his father. He wanted everything his dad could give him. And once that happened, the relationship was no longer necessary. And it's no different with us. We can value what the Father can do for us, but not the Father himself. And we can fixate on what we can get from God. And when we do that, we fail to experience his peace and his presence in our life. And then there's one that just hit me between the eyes. Because um, I've fallen into this posture a time or two in my life. This one's life for God. And maybe you've fallen there too. That's where we say, uh, man, I'm on mission. I'm, I'm about transforming this world. I'm, I'm not like some soft and lazy consumeristic life from God, other Christians. I'm about doing great stuff for God. Now, none of this, uh, of course, dismisses the importance of you and me making a difference in this world. God, God calls us to make a difference in this world. In fact, Jesus called you and me salt and light, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. But I'm just telling you from experience again. It's so easy to put the mission in place of God. And I've done it. And before we know it, our mission, our calling, our purpose, our giftedness, our ministry, our church starts becoming our God. Let me ask those of you that might be more familiar with the Bible. Uh, who within the pages of the New Testament would you say? I mean, that, that guy is sold out, driven, passionate, on mission, changed the world kind of guy. Who, who comes to your mind? Yeah, Paul's the first one that comes to your mind. I mean, dude's out there risking his life. He's traveling. He's preaching. He's planting churches. He's sacrificing, jumping in and out of prison because of his faith. And you would say, now there's a guy right there living his life for God. And although his mission dominated his life, it did not define his life. Because everything in his life, including God's calling on his life, took a backseat to his number one passion, which was God himself. 
This was a guy who had done all these, under, over, from, for, he'd done them all. And I want you to see what he writes while he's in prison because of his calling. He says this in Philippians 3, I just want to know Christ. I just want to know Jesus and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him if need be, sharing in his death so that one way or another I'll experience the resurrection from the dead. He's just above everything else in my life. My main passion is just knowing Jesus. And out of all the things that he could have prayed for us, check out what he prays in in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I pray that you may have the power to understand or to grasp as all God's people should. How wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience, experience the love of Christ, though it's just too great to understand fully. Then, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness and life and power that comes from God. Here's a guy just saying with every ounce of passion within him, you just got to get to know Jesus. You got to grasp and experience his love. Because if we don't experience God's love, We will continue to search for acceptance and security and significance in our own performance. That's life for God. The story that Jesus tells about that prodigal kid, it's only half the story. There's another son, very different than his life from God brother. This guy was reliable. He was trustworthy. He was a hard worker. He was obedient. And he represented those who work for God. So the wild younger brother comes home, you might know the story, the dad embraces him, throws a huge party to celebrate his return, but the older brother is not having it, man. He throws a fit, refuses to come to the party and says to his dad, all these years I have served you. I've been the good son. I've worked hard. This irresponsible jerk comes home and you throw a party? I've never had a party after all I've done for you. And this is the thanks I get. Now, Jesus told this story in front of a bunch of devout religious leaders who got their significance from working for God. And again, Jesus isn't telling them that faithful service is wrong. But when you find your worth there, and it really becomes all about you, it leads to self-righteousness and bitterness and resentment and anger and smug arrogance. And that is a heart that's very far from the Father. You see, for both sons... All the father ever wanted was for them to be with him. And gang, that's all he's ever wanted for you. That's all he's ever wanted for me. When he looks at you, he sees his much-loved child who was created in his image. He sees somebody that he's always, always just longed to do life with. If you go all the way back to the beginning, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis talks about how God created man and woman, and he walked with them. That was his desire from the very beginning. In fact, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, long before he even laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, has settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. God's design from the very beginning was to do life with us. We were created in his image so that we could do life together for a lifetime, for eternity. God's original intent for us to live with him is also in display in the closing chapters of the Bible in a book called Revelation. John writes this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with 
them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. From Genesis to Revelation, from start to finish, we were made to do life not under, not over, not from, not for, but with God. And I'm just telling you from my own personal experience, with changes everything, changes everything in your life. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, I hear you, but I'm not so sure he wants to do life with me. I got a friend who's been sober a long time now, and he's sponsored and helped all kinds of people. I've heard him talk about how uh, he would meet new guys coming in the recovery program, and they would say, when it got to the God part, they would say, there is no blanking way I would turn my life over to God. He'd ruin it, and I'd probably deserve it. Then he would help them kind of unpack their perception of their loveless, demanding, judgmental God. My buddy would tell them, you know what? You ought to fire that God of yours. You got the wrong God for recovery because the God who operates here is loving, he's kind, he's patient, he's encouraging, he's forgiving, he's honest, and he'll always be there for you. You know what? I had a God like yours when I first came in here. I had to fire him and get a new God. Now, please don't misunderstand me. You can't fire God but you can fire your misperceptions of him. I had to fire my old God. I had to unlearn some stuff about him. And I had to learn some things about his true character. And that's why studying the life of Jesus has helped me so much. See, I believe that Jesus came not only to lay down his life for our sins, don't get me wrong, that's a huge deal, but he also came to show us what God is really like. And as I started studying the life of Jesus, I learned that God is love. Like Nate's been teaching this past couple of weeks. He's a God who embraces outcasts. He notices the, the lonely. He fights for the underdog. He touches the untouchables. He mends the brokenhearted. I discovered that, that he really likes hanging out with screw-ups like me. It was eye-opening for me, reading about Jesus and the way he interacted with all kinds of people. And I would just encourage you to read the first four books of the New Testament part of the Bible called the Gospels, which just means the good news. Maybe just start with John, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just get to know Jesus if you want to get to know God. It was revolutionary for me, like, like still is. And as well as some of these scriptures that have helped me want to get to know God and, and do life with God. And these are just a mere sampling of scriptures that have touched me along, along the way. Like Psalm 56, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. Do you know that? You've recorded each one in your book. That tells me God cares deeply for us. Psalm 103 says, the Lord is like a father. He's like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we're only dust. He created us, so he knows, and he cares deeply. Psalm 32 says, unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. We're all searching for love. There's only one place to get 100% unfailing love, and that's with him. Psalm 130, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord, there is unfailing love and an overflowing supply of salvation. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He just says, give me all that stress. I'll take it. Give me all that fear. I'll take it. Hebrews 13, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. He is not an absentee dad. Isaiah 43, God says, when you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. I will be with 
you. In his famous song that David writes about God being a good shepherd, David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And gang, if I know all these things about God, if I know I'm eternally safe in the care of this good shepherd, I'm set free from my fear-based religion junk. I'm set free to enjoy the, 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 past, the, the, the present rather than worry about the future. I'm, I'm set free to forgive other people rather than hang on to grudges for a lifetime. I'm free to give rather than to hoard. And in my search for acceptance and security and significance, it is over. And it all starts by knowing that God just wants to do life with me. You see, what's so incredible about Christmas is that God made the first move to restore a relationship that we had broken. And it's no surprise that when God desired to mend our broken relationship, he sent his son, Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. His plan to restore creation was not to send a bunch of unrealistic religious rules and rituals. His, his plan was not to give us just some godly principles so that we could be our own God. His plan was not to send a genie so our every, our every wish was his command. His, 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 his desire was not to, to, to make us do a job to prove ourselves to him. No, God just, he just wanted to come to be with us. The good news at Christmas is that God came to be with us. He's a down-to-earth kind of God. He's with us to walk with us, talk with us, work with us, cry with us, laugh with us, do life with us. Oh, when I think about my God, who made the stars and named them, who took earth and sea and framed them, pulled back ocean tides, restrained them, breathed life into his own and claimed them. When I think about my God, who before he gave the wind direction, before he assigned the moon's reflection, before he painted the leaves' complexion, had settled on us as his main affection, who despite our rebellion, pursued us, though sin skewed us, he viewed us priceless, chose not to exclude us or let grace elude us, but instead he came to us in a smelly barn, a baby born held by teenage hands. God showed up in just his way to fulfill his plan. You see, he heard us crying, pining, hiding, dying in our sin. So in unblemished love, God slipped into our skin and the word became flesh. And the greatest became least, and swaddling clothes were wrapped around heaven's highest priest. Oh, holy night. Oh, night divine when Jesus came into this world for your sin and mine. Now, shame cannot choke us, crush us, or beat us. Death cannot conquer, condemn, or defeat us. We are alive because he is alive. We rise up because he is risen, and we know love because he first loved us. Chuck Colson um, started Prison Fellowship years and years ago. He passed away a few years ago. But Prison Fellowship is a ministry to men and women who were incarcerated, which he was at one time in his life, famously. But uh, you may have even participated in this, and I'm not sure whether Northside's ever been a part of this or not, but some of the churches I've been involved in have done Project Angel Tree. And that's at Christmas time. There's little Project Angel Tree cards hanging on Christmas trees in the lobbies of churches, and people will take them, and, and they'll go and buy gifts on behalf of an inmate to send back to his family because obviously the inmates can't shop, but they still want to provide for their kids and stuff like that. So people like you and me will go buy gifts and then 
deliver them uh, to the family on behalf of their incarcerated parent. And Chuck Colson tells a story of one time taking a bunch of gifts to a housing project in, in uh, Washington, D.C. He said he had an armful of gifts and he got to this little apartment and the screen door was kind of hanging there and he could see some kids inside. He just kind of rapped on the door and uh, they said, come on in. He comes in with these gifts and all the kids' eyes are wide open and this little boy runs over to him. He says, what's your name? He said, well, my name is Chuck. What's your name? He says, Emmanuel. And Chuck said, do you know what your name means? He goes, no. Your name means God with us. And he put the presents down. About that time, mom came home, and the little boy goes running to his mom. Mommy, mommy, God is with us. God is with us. And Chuck said as he walked down the alleyway after dropping those presents off, he just could hear that ringing in his ears. God is with us. God is with us. And he thought to himself, man, that's the hope of the world right there. And it is. He is. Oh, he's a down-to-earth kind of God. And he invites you to do life with him. And I'm just telling you, with changes everything. I'm just going to invite you to bow your head wherever you're at right now and give you some space to maybe take him up on that invitation to do life with him. Maybe you just kind of say a simple prayer from your heart, just in humility. God, I want to do life with you. I want to come home. I've, I've, been, I've been running. I've never really gotten to know you, but I want to get to know you. I want to do life with you. Jesus, I accept your incredible sacrifice for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for coming to this earth. And I want you to lead my life. I just want to do life together with you. Now, I just want to encourage you right now, just talk to God in your own words, nothing scripted, nothing fancy, just the real you, the one he loves. And he's not far, he's near. He's like with you right now. Father, you know that I have, uh, I've been all over the map in relationship with you. In fact, I look at these goofy drawings, I think how I've done every one of them. Scared to death of you, really scared to death of you. Uh, then chose to be my own God still fall into that from time to time, expecting things from you, living with a sense of entitlement instead of being grateful for what you've done, finding my worth and what I do for you. God, I thank you that you just came to do life with us, that, that you're going to go to work with us tomorrow. You're going home with us today. You're going to ride the school bus. You're going to go to practice with us. You're going to be sitting in an ICU waiting room with us. That's just who you are and what you do. Thank you that you would long to be with people like us. We're so grateful for this Christmas message. So grateful that you are a down-to-earth kind of God.
And I pray all this in the name of Jesus, the one who came down. Amen. Amen. Oh, you guys have a great Christmas. It's great being with you this weekend. Have a good week, and we'll see you back for the Christmas services.